Morrison cuts payments despite COVID uncertainty, coalition play fighting over climate action, and the good news is about land protection. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison and joining me in the co-hosting chair in what I think is sunny, or you got the storms up there yet, in lockdown, but soon to be freed Sydney is the great, the glorious, the Van Batam. How are you, Van? <laughs> I get an article. I am the Van Batam. Hello, everybody. This is the Van Batam. How are you? It's actually a bit rainy, so I couldn't have my walk earlier. Oh. Uh, and it's grey, but I love the grey. As you well know, grey is my favourite colour. <laughs> Well, that's good news for you then because it's pretty – I think it's going to be pretty grey right across most of the eastern seaboard. What hasn't been grey, what has been a bright and shiny a beacon of hope, as one listener called us, has been The Week on Wednesday. Over the last week, The Week on Wednesday has been the number one podcast in Australia for politics, the number one podcast in Australia for news – and broke into the top 25 podcasts across all categories. Uh, Massive thank you and congratulations to all of our listeners who share this podcast, who listen in, who discuss it, uh, and who engage with us on all of the topics. Van, it's been a huge week for us, hasn't it? It really has, and quite surprising. You know, Ben and I started doing this podcast during lockdown last year. We did it in our shed. Obviously, it's all very improvised, minimal tech kind of affair, as you would know if you've heard the dog or my mother interrupting this podcast. (laughs) Well, the road works outside or? (laughs) Road works outside, storms, things falling down, weird echo effects, all of these things. And it's just, it's so great to think that we found such a sizable community of people who share our values and want to talk about the news in the framework of being progressive left-wing people. It's fantastic. It gives me it gives me hope, especially last week when we were talking about the anti-lockdown protesters and the fascists and the far right in Melbourne to think that we got such a great response from really committed ordinary people who instinctively believe in collectivist values and you know fighting fascists and and sharing and being kind and all of those other crazy lefty values, that, that really cheered me up. And as everybody knows, Ben and I are separated by the border between New South Wales and Victoria. I'm obviously here caring for my mother. He's running the home front down in Victoria. I and mean, it's been really difficult, but we get so much support from people that it's it's bearable. It's People are kind. People are great. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to give a shout out to Francis Leach and Sally Rugg, who uh, had me on as a guest in an, in an episode of On the Job, the official Australian Union's podcast, uh, which they put out last Monday as well, which was talking about, interestingly enough, vaccine mandates in aged care and uh, disability sector. We're going to talk a bit more about vaccines and COVID today. Uh, but on the job, uh, on the jobpodcast.com.au is where you can hear that cross pod, as Francis calls it. Uh, and look, they do a huge amount of work over there, talking with um, workers on the front line, lots of episodes recently with health workers, really worth a listen. Uh, if this is your first time listening to the work on Wednesday, welcome. Stick with us. 
but also go and check out On The Job as well because they're really worth, that's another podcast really worth listening to. Let's dive in, Van, because heaps of news today. So it turns out that the Morrison government is going to cut payments, the emergency payments, the COVID payments, when 70% of people over the age of 16 are fully vaccinated in a state. Uh, They're going to taper it down uh, and once it reaches the 80% threshold uh, they're going to get basically cut off entirely and if you're still without work at that point as many hundreds of thousands of Australians will be then you will go on to the job seeker payment which is $320 this is a remarkably short-sighted piece of policy you know it's an act of economic violence it really is isn't it you know it is because this week we saw people queuing for food banks in australia massive long queues to get food this is not something that you know people would expect of of the great egalitarian nation australia you know advance australia fair the word fair is in the song and yet the morrison government is literally planning essentially arbitrary not needs based not evaluative based uh, assessments of where people are at economically they're just going to take the supports away because that's what they believe. They don't like welfare. They don't like being responsible for welfare. They're ideologically opposed to it. They're informed by values that say if you're poor, it's your fault. And here we are. Great. And, and you know, from my perspective, Van, as you know, and as I'm sure some of our listeners know, you know, I, I about a decade ago, ran an organisation that provided emergency food relief, uh, vouchers and other forms of emergency economic support. And I have to say, you know, people used to queue up outside our door and we changed our system so that people didn't need to queue up. And at that time, we were fortunate enough that the numbers meant that we could do that. But we've reached a stage now in Australia where we're seeing these long queues at Centrelink, long queues at Food Bank. And it's not because Food Bank are trying to dehumanise people, quite the opposite. It's that there's such an overwhelmingly large number of people that there's no practical other solution other than to have people arrive on a sort of first-come, first-served basis. Now, that's, that's an extremely difficult thing to reconcile when you've got a country as wealthy as Australia, a country where we are about to go into a new financial year uh, where we will be handing out more tax cuts to, to very high-income individuals. Uh, Services Australia has, has said that 2.16 million people uh, have received at least one COVID disaster payment. Uh, now, that that's a huge number. Some economists are suggesting that the real rate of underemployment is as high as 20%. Uh, there are another 225,000 people on uh, income payment supports uh, and paid leave disaster payments. It's There's a lot of people still suffering. And the thing about sort of tapering it off at 70 and and then tapering it off entirely at 80% vaccination 
is that even when people are vaccinated, if they're exposed or they get COVID, they won't be able to work, will they? No, they won't be able to work. If you get coronavirus, the last thing you should be doing is working. If you get coronavirus, what you should be doing is seeing a doctor, resting, sleeping, and doing absolutely everything you can to get over coronavirus. And, I mean, this, there's a structural incentive built into a casualised economy for people to come to work sick. I know last time I was working in hospitality, which unfortunately is not that long ago, within the past decade, and I used to come to work sick all the time because I had no choice because if I didn't turn up, I didn't get paid. And I dread to think, you know, my my role in the virus economy back then, and I got swine flu when I was working in hospitality and was con- like was confined at home. This, you know, before COVID there was swine flu and we thought that yeah. was bad. Of course, that's been blown out of the water and I couldn't work and part of the absolute terror of getting that disease then was that I didn't know how I was going to stay in isolation and be able to pay the rent. And, and, the, and that's you know, it was the generosity of other people yeah. that got me through that situation. And that's what we've seen at the start of this pandemic, right? Like the, all of the all of the fact and information and the research and the data showed us that workers in the insecure part of the economy, which, by the way, is now, you know, over a third of the entire workforce are in some form of insecure work. They estimate up to about 40% of working people have no access to paid leave, right? So that COVID was being spread by workers not out of a desire to spread COVID but out of economic necessity. And you saw state governments like in Victoria put in place Payments for people to go and get tested, payments for people to go and isolate, payments if you had an adverse reaction to the vaccine. So the state governments took action because the feds wouldn't. The feds uh, have been slow in providing economic support and now seem to be quite rapid at taking it away. And, And the reality at the same time is that we're moving to a point where there's a lot of talk about vaccine mandates even though we're starting to get to those targets because vaccine supply was made available, we're starting to get to those targets, those 70 80% targets. But there's still talk about mandating and yet we're not providing the supports. You know, like you can't just say to people, you're going to have to do this thing and if it means you can't pay your rent or you can't pay your bills, you can't put food on the table, too bad. This is a sort of bizarre attempt by the Liberals to impose a kind of moralism on people's, on low-income workers, not not even people, you know, like we've always sort of known that the Morrison government has viewed the unemployed uh, and people who can't work as somehow lesser. What this is really showing is that they really bundle anybody outside of the top tax bracket into the lesser category. Like the reality is we're all in this together below them, I think is really the point I'm trying to get to here. Well, you can see from the way that Morrison acts as if the prime ministership is some kind of, you know, granted empire. I just can't get over it. Like I can't get over the whole I don't hold a hose mate attitude towards his job. You know, every day I seem to find something that just says, he's in it for the treats 
like he's in it for the football tickets and the prime ministerial box and the beers and the actual part of the job which is about responsibility to the people is just it's just not a priority like the liberal party have morphed from a from a movement that actually believed in liberalism and i know that's really difficult to believe that once upon a time they're quite full on about it like in the 1940s they saw themselves as a bulwark against international communism and they were here to defend you know freedom of association rights of free speech and that was actually part of who they were and now they're sort of like a bunch of extremist, coddling, aspirational aristocrats who see their political role as just to lord it over the rest of us while our houses and farms burn, we get exposed to lethal viruses and die. Like, well, I'd really like to put it in, a, in another way. But consistently over the course of coronavirus, Scott Morrison sort of thrown his hands up in the air and gone, can someone else deal with this? Like, I've got a holiday to go on. And and essentially that's what's happened now, right? So, I mean, we'll get into his his decisions about where he does and doesn't go overseas uh, shortly because I know we want to talk about uh, what's going on with the climate change debate and I think that plays into that really, really quite well given that he's in the UN, in New York for the UN but may not go to Glasgow for the uh, climate conference. But the the point you've just raised is really, I think, hammered home by both the Liberal government in South Australia and the Liberal government in Tasmania. You know, Gutwin came out today in Tasmania and slammed Gladys Berejiklian in New South Wales for her, well, we're just going to take all the restrictions off once we get to 90% vaccination. And... And Gowan said at 80% vaccination, if we get rid of the restrictions in Tasmania, 15,000 people will end up in hospital in Tasmania and 100 people will die in the first six months. This is this, this sort of obsession with we have to have a roadmap and follow it no matter the human cost. There is a real human cost to this. 15 people died in New South Wales today, you know, over half of them were under the average age of death and around half of them were under the retirement age. This is not this is not this sort of notion that, oh, it's people in their 90s and people, people aren't dying from coronavirus, they're dying with coronavirus. I've seen that peddled as well, by the way, which I think is the most abhorrent dehumanising attempt to justify what boils down to economic greed and an obsession with an economic ideology over and uh, over human life and i mean and let's be very clear about who the economic ideology is for it's not for you and me no. it's not for people in income brackets beneath ours or god help you somebody who has has had to access welfare because their jobs have collapsed like Nobody from these realms of economic experience are prioritised by the Morrison government. It's a very, very small number of corporate interests and big spenders and big players and, dare I even suggest, big donors and their economic interests and their desire to reopen because I think... I mean, and we've seen this poll after poll. People don't want the economy to reopen if the the price for it is that immunocompromised people die or, or, you know, people for whom the vaccine and in some cases the vaccine is not enough, in tiny cases, 
but you know that's it's still a risk and and let's be honest here too we've seen just this week that people with a disability were deprioritized the disability royal commission has put that out there now the morrison government contests this point and says they weren't deprioritized there was just a refocusing i'm not a sure refocusing it's I- not deprioritization everybody it's just refocusing. I'm, I'm not sure. I it's a know bit of an airborne toxic is. event, isn't it, friends? Like they, we didn't they, deprioritize them. We refocused our attention somewhere yeah. else. Oh my god, it's so dark. It's a dystopian disinformation nightmare. It's a real kind of yes minister moment, isn't it? That, and and that means that there are many thousands of people who were identified early on in the pandemic as being in high-risk categories who have not received the vaccination. And and yet New South Wales is barrelling forward and in the next two weeks will effectively start to reopen. Victoria has now got more cases per day than New South Wales and we need to be very careful about how we reopen down here as well because we can't afford this circumstance that we're seeing happen in places like Singapore where they're well above 80%. And by the way, when I say above 80%, I mean above 80% of their entire population. If you use the kind of bogus Morrison, oh, it's only people above 16, as though somehow or another people under 16 uh, are immune anyway. They're not. They are absolutely not. When you when you look at the whole population in Singapore, um, uh, it's above 80%. It's like an 85, 86, something like that. And when you look at the above 16, you're talking about 95, 97% vaccinated. And they've just gone into another lockdown because they're getting thousands of people with COVID and it is having huge health impacts, particularly among the most vulnerable members of their community. And, you know, Van, I'm... I'm not telling you anything you don't know here, and I'm sure many of our listeners will know this too. Singapore is not a a city-state that is renowned for its humanitarian approach to politics. Yeah, no, not not really renowned for its humanitarian approach, as you will learn in any kind of surreptitious conversation with a Singaporean taxi driver who believes they can speak freely. Yes, it's quite quite a um, strict yeah. Uh, strict uh, governmental cultural policy but, but in they have, Singapore. They have absolutely locked down. Now, the idea that in the same few days the Morrison government is is both refocusing vaccines away from people with a disability. Refocusing, refocusing and, them. And cutting financial support for people who are still unemployed as a result of the pandemic. It'll be people in hospitality. It'll be people in the arts. It'll be people in education. The the same people who have borne the cost of the pandemic and borne the slow financial response and economic support of the Morrison government will now wear it again. It's, it's mind-boggling, a mind-boggling kind of... But- Blindness. But we have to get this back to the level of ideology. I mean, and this is the question I want I want people to ask themselves if they're voted Liberal or their Liberal voting friends. Like, what do you think this party actually stands for based on what they do? 
because you know the 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 need for a bulwark against communism, authoritarian, Stalinist, Soviet-style communism in this country. Well, that need has has long passed. Frankly, yeah. like if if that's important to you, I don't I don't think we're fighting that war anymore, people. No. So how have they actually demonstrated their values? Like I made this point when we were speaking last week about this is a this is a political party as a party of government that did everything it could to protect Craig Kelly and George Christensen while it lost people like Malcolm Turnbull and Julia Banks and Kelly O'Dwyer and Christopher Pine, people who were considered moderates within that caucus. And yet all of those people considered moderates, they're all neoliberals. Like they all believe yeah. in what was Turnbull's line. It was he believed in you know, freedom, the individual and the market, like yeah, they were right. his priorities. Bring back authoritarian communism, said Van. Joking, nobody <laughs> nobody likes impressive Stalinist no. dictatorship. But um, although the design ethos was pretty impressive. However, that's sorry, everybody went to art school. I have moments. But certainly what's left Check behind. Check out the Plumbers Union office in Melbourne, by the way. When, you, when you're free to move around, if you like a bit of brutalist Stalinist Architecture. The people people come from all over the world to to look at the Victorian Plumbers Union office because it's such a good example of that architecture. Anyway, by the way, everybody, Ben loves brutalism, and one of the great love gifts I have presented him over the course of our relationship is a world atlas of brutalist architecture as part of a lifelong mission for us to visit large concrete vats of uh, (laughs) rather intense design principles for the rest of our lives because that's what we do. Everyone. Anyway, um, I think my point is if you hollow out the radical neoliberals, if you're like they're too centrist for us, like what is actually remaining? Well, like what look, does that party represent to the people who vote for it? Because well, I know lots of liberal voters who aren't like that party no. and yet continually exercise a vote in that direction. One of the things that I've heard during the course of the pandemic has been, you know, that, that, the lockdowns in the economy um, are, are devastating to mental health uh, and are driving up suicides and there's all sorts of hidden costs, right? The sort of hidden costs of the pandemic is a phrase that I've heard used by, by people who sort of support this Morrison-esque approach. And it's been widely reported today that in actual fact death rates in 2020 dropped uh, and not just death rates among car accidents, which you'd expect, less people on car driving around in cars, um, but uh, overdoses and suicides. So, you know, suicide rates are at their lowest for women since 2013 and their lowest for men since 2016. There has been a big emphasis on mental health during the pandemic, and that's a good thing, and there should always be a big emphasis on mental health. And, in fact, one of the things maybe we can take out of the pandemic for how we structure our society going forward is that mentally healthy, physically healthy communities are communities that will also be economically prosperous. Because we also saw, people might remember, some people might have experienced that we reduced poverty during the pandemic because we decided to put money where it was actually needed and that was with people who were underemployed or unemployed or couldn't work for reason of disability or age. We decided to support those communities of people to participate in the broader community and poverty declined. 
Now, Morrison has been winding that back and winding that back, and poverty has increased, and mental health issues have increased. The, the linkages here are very clear. They're very clear. Uh, it and is you- amazing because, as people know, I've been undercover in the far right for the past year studying QAnon communities for my book QAnon and On, which comes out in six weeks on November 17, and, yes, you can pre-order it. That would be lovely. And I've seen this trope uh, in the right, in the anti-lockdown communities. They talk about it all the time. Oh, the effective lockdowns on mental health and we're torturing children and, you, you know, suicide rates are exploding. And this factual data about the fact that, no, that's not actually what's happening is very interesting because it, it you know, it's this complete contradiction that these people who are insisting that lockdown is just devastating to mental health, where were they when we were campaigning for better yeah. mental health investment and support? Where were they when we were demanding? And I say this as a person, I'm quite honest about the fact that I live, as you unfortunately know, with major depressive disorder. It's debilitating. You know, it is, it's, it's a heavy thing to live with. And I, my empathy goes out to anybody who negotiates living with a mental illness like major depressive disorder or um, bipolar or anxiety or anything else. Like I, I get you. I understand the, the life on a slightly higher difficulty setting um, that, that, that we inherit yeah. in our community. But I, I I just find it extraordinary that the people who show the most bigotry, prejudice, cruelty and violence towards others are the ones who are insisting that lockdowns and health regulations are bad for mental health. I'm like, your solidarity has been literally non-existent to this point. And in fact, let's look at why these statistics may be the way that they are, that people are at home, uh, people are receiving, you know, support from one another. We're actually being kinder to one another. Like the the kindness pandemic has been observed. Like people are aware of the fact that, you know, it is hard. We're living through unprecedented times, something that generationally we had no preparation for at all, this kind of level of crisis and protracted ongoing crisis. And people are sensitive to mental health issues. And you see the the discussion on, on like, not far-right lunatic yeah. Facebook and social media of people actually being kind to one another. Just anecdotally, I've noticed that the abusive trolling of myself has dropped off somewhat <laughs> on Twitter. I don't know if people stuck at home are maybe reevaluating whether they should send, like, a denigrating attack on my appearance, character or political behaviour and just go, you know, am I really going to feel better after attacking that woman I don't know on the internet? Probably not. I mean, I hope that's what's going on. I do know that there's been less abuse of late, which has been sort of discontent concerning. Uh, I wondered if I was <laughs> losing my touch. Maybe I should put out a few controversial tweets no, think, to kick everyone well, off. But well, I, th- I think the thing is, Van, you know, and and I've had a number of conversations in the last few weeks with friends about mental health, friends that I've known for a long, long time, like I, friends I've known my entire life um, who, who I didn't realise had mental health um, issues or mental health trials and tribulations. Uh, And, you know, we've talked about medications and we've talked about therapies and we've talked about what's worked and what hasn't. And, you know, in a way that we never did before, that it just would not have occurred to us to. And and these are people that I would think of as brothers, you know. Um, So there is that element of it, right? So I I reject, and, and you and I, of course, you know, we're separated by a border. 
it's it's almost been four months. It'll be three and a half months shortly. It's likely to be at least four, possibly five, possibly longer. You know, we understand that the difficulty of it, but the the kind of nonsense argument that the solution is to get people back into jobs that are insecure, that are low paid, where they that are, are high stress because they're insecure. I mean, it's almost like, Ben, it's almost like there's a relationship between distress and economic insecurity. I mean, how crazy yeah. would that be? How crazy if maybe people being given financial support and removing the source of economic distress from their lives temporarily with adequate government support, wouldn't it just be out there <laughs> if that was actually alleviating a lot of the pressure that people feel and maybe discouraging suicidal ideation because people felt that they had some kind of economic security to hang on to the next day that might not make their distress feel overwhelming. I mean, wouldn't that be far out to consider and, that as a concept? And wouldn't the, wouldn't it be great if the the rebuild, part of the rebuild after the pandemic was and I don't think we're going to get it out of Morrison, right? I think we only get this with a change of government in this country. But part of the rebuild is a recognition that decent, secure work, proper pay, a safety net for, for people who can't work for some period of time for whatever reason, and, and actual supports for people's mental and physical health, and that it being okay to prioritise those things you know, I'm one of those people who struggles to say no to any request that that sounds like work from anybody because of my work ethic and the kind of I was going to say institutionalization, but the socialization that we've had. Friends, Benjamin is a Protestant, but it's uh, it, it's it'd be great if we came out of this going. You know, poverty is a political choice, and we're going to make a different choice, and you know masses of people having poor mental health is a political choice and we're going to make a different choice. People having financial insecurity and being unsure about their job and the stress and pressures that come about as a result of that is a political choice and we're going to make a different choice. You know, if we just, if those three things, if we just make three different choices, then maybe, maybe the other side of the pandemic is actually a better place than where we started from. Let's talk about let's talk about climate because this is another <laughs> this is another set of political choices. Moving right? on from mental illness, here's something to absolutely distress everyone. Well, I want to I want to give people some reassurance here, right? Because I appreciate that there is a lot of stress about this, and we saw all the the the, the nonsense stuff about uh, we need more, we need more chaplains. The Liberals want more chaplains um, trained in how to tell students that climate change isn't real. There was something like that, right? Like environmentalists are stressing out kids. Um, and and can I just say that um, I want to give a shout-out here because we the, the issues we just talked about, all of those issues, the secure work issue, the poverty issue, the issues around mental health and, and healthy workplaces, you know, 
Australian unions who've been supporters of this show um, for, for some time now, they're doing work on all of those issues, right? And actually, union members are getting better outcomes in that space. And, and every week we say, join your union, right? Because if you join your union, you're part of the positive change in those areas. And you can join online, australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W. And not only are they doing that work, that important political, economic, workplace work, they're actually also doing work in climate, right? And, and I don't mean they're going into schools and trying to convince children that it's not real. I mean, they're looking at the fact that we're going to get to net zero and what does that look like and and what's the journey there and how do we get there that brings communities with us? Because what we're seeing now, Van, is a real uh, – is, is play acting, right? Like it's in the news constantly, this – Barnaby Joyce and Bridget McKenzie and Matt Canavan and Rennick, you know, we're not going to do anything about climate change versus Zimmerman and Falinski uh, and Sharma and Frydenberg. Oh, we've got to have change on climate. It's all play acting. It's all, you know, the WWE of political theatre, right? (laughs) Nice one. No, that's nice. That was a good one, Benny. You like that one? Zinger. 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 Well, it is. It's the WWF political theatre because the states are all moving. The, the states are all moving to net zero. Companies are moving to net zero. Yeah, corporations are moving to net zero with enormous amounts of speed because they know that if they don't, they will they will obsoletify themselves. And that's and a new say word. Companies. Yeah. Okay. Tesla. People will think, oh, Tesla and. You know, other sort of green companies, oh, you know, Apple's probably doing something, you know, whatever. Sure. Yeah, they're all doing their thing. But I'm I'm talking about Woodside, right? I'm talking about Australia's biggest oil company. I'm talking about Origin Energy, you know, the, the largest producer of electricity. I'm talking about Fortescue, the largest miner of iron ore, possibly in the world now, certainly in Australia. They're competing with each other. To get access to the resources they need to make green ammonia for the export of green hydrogen. This is not a fringe issue. This is not companies kind of like, you know, oh, we have a recycling day in the office. These are major fossil fuel based companies going, the world is changing. The world is changing. The rest of the world is going to net zero. The Morrison government is not going to be around forever. We as companies want to outlive any particular government. To do that, we have to look to the future and the future is net zero. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people are so weird about capitalism. Like the only thing capitalists care about is money. The dead giveaway is in the word capitalism. And it's like if Woodside could make as much money painting noses red, they'd paint noses red. You know, if there was, like, seriously, these people are not governed by any sense of destiny beyond the accumulation of more more capital. That's what they pursue. In fact, in Australia, it's legislated that they must do that. Like, they don't care if they're digging up coal or digging up the bones of your ancestors. These are irrelevant considerations. It is about the constant flow of money. 
And if digging coal out of the ground or oil or gas or anything else becomes untenable, we spoke last week about leaded petrol. Leaded petrol is now over. It used to be really lucrative, the leaded petrol market. Yeah. But regulatory environments, social change, technological adaptation meant that that market dried up and the intelligent producers, they moved really quickly to go into an alternative product, creating an alternative commodity when that writing was on the wall. And I mean, and this is the thing, like we are living with climate change, the regulatory environments in other places like the EU and the United States of America, these are two very big, very wealthy markets, are changing and that means you've got to, you can't be in it for a good time with capitalism. You want to be in it for a long time. Otherwise, the capital dries up. And the rest of the world seems to have worked that out, but Australia hasn't because we, for all the Liberal Party talk about, oh, you know, the party of business and supporting entrepreneurs, they don't really support entrepreneurs here. They sort of support the sort of fatuous welfare for the rich system where depending on the mates you have in government, you get paid out on various government contracts or secured markets. That all have to do with essentially, you know, social favouritism, whereas other producers are looking at a changed reality, like changing markets, changing demands, changing regulatory environments and going, how do we maintain our profit margin? How do we maintain our competitive edge? And, you know, you and I have spoken a lot about Adani and the Adani mine and how that was such a big political problem in the last federal election. Yeah. And the anti-Adani campaign was literally one of the worst campaigns I have ever seen. I've seen some terrible (laughs) environmental campaigns in my life. And I say this as an environmentalist, as a person who has been arrested numerous times for trying to protect wilderness or, you know, stop the desecration of our planet. I'm sure everybody who listens to this podcast knows that, you know, my environmental dedication is total. And Ben especially knows this, given various bans on substances in our house, which make his life inconvenient. But the Stop Adani campaign was just like you were digging in the wrong place. Rather than driving up to Queen, driving up to Queensland, well done everyone, um, to yell at people in towns where there were twenty to thirty percent unemployment rates about how wanting well like well paying jobs in this proposed mine was like unfair and selfish. And you know, generally I think that towns with really large populations of unemployed people are not really where you go to attack people with a moral argument. I just don't I don't think no. that's respectful or appropriate. Um, but I published a, an article in The Guardian which was attack the profit, attack the, the the profit-making capabilities of the company that wants to invest here. Like that's what that's what you do. Yeah. You, like the guy who runs Adani, he doesn't care if it's coal. He doesn't care. No. He no. just cares about money. And if you make this economically unviable, if you pursue the, the path towards what is going to dent the profit margin on this that makes it an expensive like white elephant, that's how you win. Why are you abusing unemployed people in country towns? Like where is your proposed, where is the proposed economic model for jobs in other capacities? And, of course, while you had hippies in Teslas screaming at poor people, you also had a Labor government in Queensland that was doing the sensible thing that really probably should have been backed in quite a lot more by building jobs in renewable energy, like incredible 
renewable projects were being built in targeted high unemployment areas in far north Queensland, the electric vehicle superhighway that we're putting in, those kind of initiatives that if you get popular support behind them and culture, like makers of creators, protest movements, demanding more of what you can do as well as fighting against the profit margins of companies like Adani, that's that's how you win. And we know that's how you win because it's happening in other places around the world. I mean, you talk a lot about some of the schemes that you've seen in Scandinavia, like when you were living there and the kind of the kind of way that those movements have allowed things like, you know, shipyards and uh, declining unemployment in certain targeted industrial areas be reversed by an adaptation of technology around renewables and windmill production and those Absolutely. kind of things that have revitalised places like Copenhagen. And it and it is and it is about understanding that climate action means job action, right? If you take action on climate, you're taking action to create jobs, and and the political theatre that the coalition is engaged in at the moment is really about softening and positioning them with with the electorate, right? It's about making sure that climate change sceptics are not 100% happy with them, right? Uh, So they can say to people, look, we do believe in climate change and these climate change sceptics, you know, they're not happy, they haven't got what they want, but, you know, we're more sensible and we protect more jobs than Labor does. And the reality of that is they haven't, that they've actually foregone jobs. You know, there's lots of jobs... There was a finally, finally, after years and years of legislation sitting on the desk of the coalition government, they've signed off on legislation to go into parliament that will allow for offshore wind. Now, we are slow moving on this, slow moving on this. We have the world's greatest resources of lithium which needs which renewable batteries need. Like there's so many opportunities here that, because the coalition insists on this political theatre, this idea that somehow or another the National Party, which gets four and a half percent of the vote, by the way, you know, and and even if you add in the combined LNP brand in Queensland, they get about twelve percent. They get about twelve percent of the vote. You know, that this slim minority of people who have a disproportionate representation in Parliament are holding up a global movement towards net zero. You know, they like to bang on about, oh, we're less than 1% of the world's total emissions. We can't really make a difference. We're one of the highest per capita emitters in the world. We are. We're absolutely shocking. But let me just say, let me just say, if if their view is that we can't make a difference on emissions because we don't emit that many, then what do they think the difference we make is by not moving? Because let me tell you, the world will move without us and our big corporations aren't going to wait around. They see themselves as players on a global market and it'll be jobs and communities that suffer, jobs that won't be created here but created elsewhere, communities that will be left to wither on the vine here as those jobs go more and more offshore. That's the National Party legacy. Yeah, it enrages me. One of the things I cannot get over from the last election, apart from the fact that our side lost, which I will never get over, was that Bill Shorten's speech, the ALP conference where they announced the campaign, 
in his in the speech that he gave as the leader, he was like, "We are the only sovereign nation on earth where we produce everything you need for a battery. That everything you need for renewables, battery technology, we are the only country on earth that can supply all of those things for that industry ourselves. That's what we should be investing in. That's the future. These are manufacturing jobs of the future." And again and again, we have, an like despite everything the coalition have done to the university sector here, we have one of the most literate, highly educated populations on earth. We have all of this capacity for research and development. The list of Australian innovations globally is extraordinary based on the size of our population. And yet again and again, and it's the, the tragic history of this country, is that Australian innovators have to go overseas in order to get support for the things they invent, like lasers and the Unix system. And, I mean, it is just, it's unfathomable to me where you wouldn't go, well, so the world is heading towards this sort of high-tech, renewable-powered future where there's going to be an absolute demand on resources of science and industry. We have all these raw materials. We have, you know, an extraordinarily highly educated population. We have a national will for sovereign industries, and we do. Like the overwhelming majority of Australians want to buy things that are made in Australia. Like we see that political campaign again and again and again, this incredible loyalty to local manufacturing and a desire to encourage it and and those, you know, create those kind of jobs. And we have a government that is literally standing in the way of that again and again and again. You know, so many of the technologies you and I talk about on this show as being good news for the world, like the like an incipient airship industry that they're funding in Britain, like the incredible kinetic-powered trams that they're building in South Korea, like these incredible um, the um, solar-powered public transport and those incredible cables they've built in Belgium, which yeah. uh, not cables, um, they're like canopies oh. that go over the the train network where they're absorbing solar power in order to run the train system. Like these innovations are totally within what we can create as a community. My favourite, which is solar boat technology, like they are like aeronautical design units in Australian University that are doing some of the best research in the world about solar-powered naval technology. Like that's transformative. If you look at things like shipping and the fossil fuel cost of shipping and the way that they can... But do we have a government that's encouraging that? No. Do we have a government that has a plan to deal with climate change? No. Is there any kind of industrial vision to do with the new, like the opportunities of the new economic climate change reality? No. Well, no, we're not doing that and it's, because the Prime Minister doesn't hold a hose. And, it, and it's really so disappointing to see the National Party be used as this, as this straw man for this you know, for this kind of pantomime because the reality is that farmers in Australia, like they get it. Farmers are changing the way they farm and they're doing it because it improves soil, because it improves yields. Reducing emissions means more money for the farmer, you know, and it means the farm la- the farm lasts longer. You know, water costs money. So if you use less of it to produce the same amount, then it costs less to produce so there's more profit. Like, the, you know, this kind of notion that farmers are all as dumb as Barnaby Joyce is really, I think, quite sickening and needs to be addressed because Australian farmers are among the most productive and advanced in the world, 
we have very few subsidies in our agriculture system here in Australia compared to most of the Western world, and yet the National Party behave as though farmers somehow or another don't get it, as though farmers are going to be picketing solar uh, panel farms and wind turbines because that's just not the case. You know, it's not the city versus country. It's a political pantomime and it's about donors and it's about funding and it's about who's who's got the base to get out and campaign. Well, let's be honest about why they use the National Party for this stuff. Oh, well, we'd move on that, but, you know, we're, we're partners with the National Party and, you know, there's concern. It's because the kind of voters, the kind of Liberal voters who are like, hang on, the planet's on fire, this is very bad, I'm a business-minded individual who's looking at market development and I'm concerned that when I speak to my international business pals that they're moving really quickly in this space and I think we're going to get left behind. Like Those kind of Liberal voters are concentrated in seats like Trent Zimmerman's in North Sydney and Felinski's, wherever Felinski is, and Josh Frydenberg's and Katie Allen's. Like That's where those people are. Yeah. And the Liberal Party are very aware of the fact that that is a growing concern in those electorates, which is how they lost uh, Warringo when yeah. Tony Abbott lost his seat to Zali Stegall, which was how we had that you know beautiful few months when Karen Phelps was the member for Wentworth and Dave, slightly more boring than Beige Paint Sharma, was... Um, was not, not was the member not. for Wentworth. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I just, I used to live in that seat and it's like at least Malcolm Turnbull had a personality. He was a Tory but he had a personality and I'm yep. just like what has happened to old Wentworth, my Lord. Anyway, <laughs> so th- these kind of internal pressures of the, and it's not just the voters, it's the branch members who yep. are involved in the Liberal Party in those kind of areas making those kind of demands. Blaming everything on the National Party is how the the Liberals get away with it. Oh, well, you know, Trent yeah. and Jason and um, Joshy, you know, they're all very committed. But, I mean, it's very hard. You know, we've got to think about our partners in the bush kind of thing. And it's like it's it, it's part of the political ruse. It's also in the interest of the National Party before an election. You Like you always know when election dates are being discussed in the in federal coalition governments because the national national party start referring to the liberals as the government even yeah. though by virtue of their coalition agreement the fact that deputy prime minister of this country is Barnaby Joyce words that will never stop terrifying me to say like they are the government they but the in government. all of their electioneering they start referring oh the government oh the liberals are oh, liberals are out of control like it's a bait and switch Like they are effectively the same party. They are the same party in Queensland. They sit in the same caucus room. They might dress it a little differently depending which camera they're standing in front of. But we're looking at a shared value set. Outrageous. Yeah, and and it is it is outrageous, and it's designed to play a trick on on the voting people of Queensland in particular, but also WA, New South Wales, Victoria, around the whole country. Really, there's a there's a there's a bait and switch. It's a political pantomime, and and the climate, the internal squabbles of the coalition on climate, it really is the political version of the WWE. It looks spectacular. It's interesting to report on. You know, there's 
passion and movement and all kinds of weird and wonderful things to catch the eye. But the reality is nothing is actually happening and no, nothing actually changes. And you can hear that in the language that Morrison uses, the plan to have a plan. Well, we're, we're not going to make a commitment to what goes on in Glasgow if we don't have a plan. It's like you haven't had a plan in this space ever. Like you don't plan. The one person who suggested a plan, Malcolm Turnbull, you absolutely knived and destroyed. You made his prime ministership absolutely untenable. You know, the leadership of one person within the caucus who was actually willing to find a suitable, you know, a liberal solution, which personally, like, let's be very clear, I wouldn't have agreed with, you wouldn't have agreed with. No. We would have gone, we invented the state for a reason, people, and that's to protect the people. Yeah. Like and I think state it's a solutions, not market ones. Yeah, but you take the, what you can get and they know. Turnbull. Yeah, and I think at the time Labor had said, look, this isn't what we would do, but if it's all you're prepared to do, then we'll support it and when when and if we get into government, we'll look at what we can do. But if this is all you prepared to do, then we'll back it. And they still couldn't get it up. Like it still couldn't happen. So, look, the reality is, the, and the reason I say there is actually good news here is that the good news on this is that the rest of the world is moving uh, Australia is moving as well. It's just not being led by the Commonwealth government. It's being led by state we're governments. We're meandering. That's yeah, what we're, well, we're being led by state governments. We are being led by business, by National Farmers Federation, by Australian unions. You know, there are roundtables and there are forums and there are discussions where how we get to net zero is being discussed. Not a plan for a plan, but what is actually going to happen and how are we going to interact with each other as unions and companies and state governments when change is happening? Because it is happening. You know, those fossil fuel-based coal-fired power stations in many cases are running out of life. They, they will go and we will still need electricity. The demand for uh, thermal coal will start to taper off and diminish now that China has announced it won't be funding coal-fired power stations in other parts of the world. You know, as, as technology changes the way metals are constructed, the demand for metallurgical coal will decline. All of these things are happening. They're in the process of happening and it would be better frankly, to have a Commonwealth government that was prepared to lead, that was prepared to show a bit of foresight. But we don't have that. And we can, but we can, but we can have that. And Van, I think you were going to mention that there's a some activity going on. Uh, there's a National this. Day of Action for Climate Action on October 1st, which is Friday. If you're listening to this on Wednesday, Thursday or Friday, you can hop along and get involved. Being organised by our very good friends and comrades at Act on Climate Victoria who are just amazing, a wonderful environmental organisation. If you're waking up in the morning going, what can I do for the planet today? I would say go straight to their Facebook page and send them a message and say, I want to be involved give me something to do because they will they are they're just so good they're so effective and they're running a campaign to put pressure on Morrison to get his finger out uh, on October 1st they are asking for people to participate in a social media protest a visibility protest uh, against the government's inaction on climate and you can do this covid safe from home 
lovely activity for the family if you are locked in your house with your children and, you know, stretching for exercises to keep them engaged. Uh, They'll give you all the instructions. It's on their Facebook page. We'll post a link with uh, this where we put it so you can participate in that and, you know, knock off the what you did for the climate activity for the day. So, yeah, yeah, make your voice heard. And as always, I would encourage people to check with your union about the activities they're doing. There's lots of union activity around the climate space in the lead up to the Glasgow Climate Conference. I know the International Trade Union Confederation, the ITUC, and Australian unions are running lots of activity and forums and discussions that people can get involved with through their union. Lots of individual unions are doing it as well because there's all sorts of things that, that, you know, we don't have time to get into everything that's going on and all the bits and pieces, which is why it'd be good to have national leadership so we could have one national narrative. But anyway, uh, there's lots, there is lots and lots going on. We will get to net zero. I have absolute faith that we will get to net zero because that's what's needed and If nothing else, the pandemic has shown us that when people have the will, we can and we do do what is needed. Now, look, I think that was good news, but there's even more good news, Van. Like this has got to be the most good news-packed episode of the week on Wednesday ever. If you're a new listener to this show and you've just joined us because you you listened to the last episode, uh, this this is the most good news we've had. Van, there's... Am I getting this right? There's a land protection situation in Europe where the equivalent of the European Amazon is being protected now. Is that right? Oh, this is so good. This is a project 12 years in the making and obviously the – it's so exciting. Like it is really, really exciting. (laughs) So – Climate change is not something they're planning to have a plan about in Europe, in Europe, which is densely populated part of the world, where they've had massive environmental problems in the past, like in antiquity and the Middle Ages, they are taking the threat quite seriously. And uh, UNESCO has facilitated the creation of a biosphere reserve. And what's amazing about this is it's more than 4,000 square miles but it's across five different national boundaries. And let's list the nations, Austria, Hungary, Slovenia, Croatia and Serbia. I'm old enough to remember a modern war between Serbia and and Croatia. There will be lots of people in Australia whose parents uh, fought in that war, you know. There will be people alive today who who fled that war, came here as refugees from, from that war. Absolutely. Um, And yet those countries, those sovereign nations have gone, right, this is bigger than all of us. We are building this biosphere and we are working across five national boundaries to protect this land. And they've done it really cleverly and really cleanly where they've looked at um, an area of wilderness, which is about 1,200 square miles, which is like in need of protection that's the most concentrated protection, so that's like a a no-person zone. But beyond that, they've looked at radial communities and the fact that there are villages and little economies and and 
you know, and human domestication in parts of that area, but they've prioritised going, well, this is a crucial biosphere, particularly for the protection of Slovenian fish, um, 36 of which are endangered if there are threats to this area. Um, what can, How can we work with what's already here to make this viable? And they've prioritised support for economic projects to do with limited agriculture, with ecotourism and with habitat management. So they've created environmental economies around this area that they're trying to protect. And it's just where there's a will, these things are possible. And there are more projects like this that they're talking about in Europe and, you know, prioritising because the biospheres keep us alive, mass extinction events threaten all of us. You know, these disturbances in ecology, they come back to haunt people. And when I talk about, you know, Europe has been here before, it, what drove the, the spread of colonisation from uh, from Greece in the classical period you know, with the the Greeks turning up in Tarentum in Italy and, you know, this, this spread of uh, a Greek civilization was that they had denuded their environment by the 8th century BC. Yeah. Like, and they had caused, like, massive economic problems through things like overmining and overfarming. And, you know, that's a historical legacy of, of Europe dealing with environmental devastation, mm-hmm. which is two and a half thousand years old. A, a little known mm-hmm. factoid about the Black Death, the, the Great Plague in Europe in the medieval period, was not only that people dying everywhere was responsible for the world's first um, labour laws and wage laws because suddenly workers were in demand and could form proto-unions and make demands about wages and conditions. So the union movement owes its history to the plague in many ways. But Europe had almost, you know, devastatingly deforested across heaps of its precious sort of biospheres, and the the plague um, wiped people out to the extent that a lot of villages just ceased to exist, and the forest grew back, which yeah. saved Europe from complete devastation. How about, guys? How about we don't need to totally denude our environment or die of a plague? To, to protect the forests that keep us alive and the other biospheres and well, river systems, and let's follow the UNESCO example and go, how do we make this work? Let's use uh, everything that we've learned from the medieval period to head off disaster. Absolutely. I, I think there's some wisdom in that, Ben. I, I think, think there's, there's some wisdom in that. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, Van. And, look, that that's a really great note to end on, that there is wisdom from the past that we can apply now to make sure that we have a future uh, and we're doing it and there are people doing it, people who have long held enmity against each other for all sorts of reasons Mm. are able to put that to one side and go, you know what, our survival as a species has to take precedent. So... Uh, and we need we needed a planet we can live on for that to happen. What great news. What great news that there are people recognising that. So that is the week on Wednesday for this, the 29th of September 2021. I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank you for sharing this uh, episode and I want to thank you for liking it, subscribing it, talking to your friends about these issues. You know, people keep asking me online, and I'm sure they do you as well, Van, you know, what can I do? I feel like there's so much happening. I've got an answer. What's that? Have you thought about joining a union? 
Absolutely. Have you thought about lending your individual strength and courage to an organised collective movement of working people? Because that's what you can do. You can join a union right now. There is literally a union for everybody by going to australianunions.org.au and then a backslash and then the word WOW, which stands for Week on Wednesday, so they know that you've come from us. And then we get, you know, love letters from all directions going, this is so awesome all these wonderful people who are joining the movement for fairness and for change. That is literally what you can do to make yourself part of the conversation. So you can get out of bed in the morning and go, I did something for the environment today. I did something for the economy today. I did something for working people today. I did something to fight poverty today. I did something to lessen people's distress from mental illness by campaigning for secure jobs and fair wages and conditions. You will go to bed at night knowing that you were part of something good and moral and constructive. So join a union. Fantastic. And don't forget to share this episode with your friends and your family. You know, we will have be back on Sunday with the weekend wrap, my 20-minute wrap of the issues that occur between now and next Wednesday. I thank everybody for listening. You know, you made us number one in news. This little podcast that Van and I, we do, you know, from our shed effectively, uh, up against up against some pretty big media conglomerates all the big all the big TV and radio stations have their own news podcasts uh, and you made us number one and I have to say that really touched me this week uh, even if this episode doesn't get us to number one I hope that you keep listening I hope you keep engaging I hope you do join your union and I hope that you take these messages to your friends, your family and your co-workers. We love feeling part of our community with you. Absolutely. Love you, Vanny. I love you too. I miss you terribly. Miss you too. Bye. Bye.